1: At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room?
0: And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, Very glad to be joined, uh, at least virtually online today. by uh, longtime uh, friend and associate Lauren McGaughy of the Dallas Morning News. Uh, Lauren is a, an investigative reporter focused on gender sexuality and politics at the Dallas Morning News, uh, has been a guest before. We were trying to sort out how long it's been. We think about five years, um, though, you know, given the, the last few dog years, we're, it took us a while to figure that out. <laughs> so uh, welcome, Lauren. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks. I'm really
0: happy to be talking about this issue. So let's get right to it then. Your beat has been a very active one. And I want to start with the most recent issue before we kind of go, go back and look at context and, and how some of these issues have invo- uh, have evolved. So I want to start by asking you to, to bring us up to speed on recent events in the realm of gender affirmative care for transgender kids in Texas Uh, The most recent chain of events seems to me was triggered, triggered by linked announcements by Attorney General Paxton and Governor Abbott. Uh, Not coincidentally, I don't think, although we'll get into that uh, in the final weeks of the Republican primary. So can you give us some background on that and kind of bring us up to the present?
1: Sure. Um, I'll try to make this as user friendly because it can get in the weeds very quickly. Um, so yeah, uh, in February, we saw this opinion come out from, uh, General Paxton. Uh, it's a non-binding opinion. It's basically Paxton saying, hey, I'm going to take a look at current law that's already on the books and give you my thoughts. And he issued a new interpretation of the state's child abuse law, where he said explicitly that his belief is that. Certain kinds of gender affirming medical treatments for trans minors are child abuse under the current statute. So he issues that. And, you know, very soon after the governor sends a letter to the Department of Protective uh, Family and Protective Services saying, hey, um, you know, you have to investigate any reports of this, quote, alleged abuse And he also CC'd a bunch of other state agencies on it that deal with kids like the Education Department, the Juvenile Justice Department. And interestingly, the governor also explicitly warned in that letter that uh, teachers and um, certain other state workers are required to report abuse. And if they don't, there's criminal penalties. And there are even reporting requirements for the public. So They were very strong statements from two of the most highly elected men in, you know, highest elected officials in the state. And within days, we saw, um, we actually saw a lawsuit from a state worker who works for that same agency, the Department of Family and Protective Services, who is suing to block this directive from the governor and the attorney general because this state worker has a transgender daughter. Uh, who's a teenager, getting uh, gender-affirming care, and the state worker says they were put on leave and investigated for alleged abuse after this directive came out. So where we are right now is um, tomorrow there's supposed to be a court hearing in Travis County about this request from the state worker to block the directive for just her family. Um, The judge will consider, has said, will consider whether whether then to block this directive block these investigations statewide for everybody um but it is one of the hottest um uh political issues right now and it's one that is really having a trickle-down effect for a lot of groups teachers cps caseworkers doctors uh really anyone whose lives touch the touch the the lives around children and specifically trans children
0: so uh, i for our listeners, we're recording this on Thursday, so that hearing is Friday. Um, yes, and I, I also want to do you. How familiar are you with the legal arguments that the person who's brought this suit, the the family that's brought this suit? I mean, what what is the argument they're making to try to enjoin this investigation? Do you know? I, I think you looked. You said you had looked at the court documents.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's it's the uh, parent, the state worker who's been put on leave, who has a trans daughter. And then there's also a physician, a mental health care um, provider out of Houston, and they they're giving separate arguments. So the parent says, "Look, the medical the best practices, medical suggestions are that certain kinds of care is appropriate for trans kids. I've talked with my daughter doctor about it. I've talked with my kid about it. You know, I'm not doing anything that's outside of the the regular scope of how you approach treating a transgender minor. And by investigating me for child abuse, not only has it affected my job, but my my relationship with my child. So that's the the state worker's argument. Um, the physician is saying that she has certain uh, medical requirements, ethical requirements to provide care. It, like, you know, a doctor can actually be found to be in breach of, of certain ethical requirements if they deny care or refuse care and she says by not allowing her to treat trans children according to the best medical practices currently on the books um by investigating her by requiring her to turn over patients and their parents that it would actually breach those ethics so different arguments on two okay.
0: sides that, that's great that's super helpful i think um you know since we're talking about uh, uh, about this care and you've raised the arguments of the doctor um you know, I'm interested. I know I know you've done some work on this. Can you tell us what the nature of the of gender affirmative care is? I mean, and, and I ask, you know, in part just to fill in the facts, but also because mm-hmm. you know, I, as you're well aware and I I think you're probably seeing in your Twitter feed um you know, a lot of the most hyperbolic support for these kinds of actions that the the, the governor and the attorney general have taken. You know, have taken the form of very extreme portrayals of what gender affirmative care looks like, you know, particularly, I think, appealing yeah. to, you know, bodily anxiety and, you know, this, you know, very loose references and and intimations of of very, you know, uh, fundamental kind of physical surgical procedures, that, which my right. understanding is that that is not the case. And so right. I, I'd be interested if you could tell fill us in a little bit more on what you know about what the protocols are and what the nature of this gender affirmative care is.
1: Yeah, um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do that. Um, if if um, if listeners want to read some of this too, we we wrote a story back in November, the Dallas Morning News. Um, called uh, the the headline is Dallas Clinic. Uh, Genesis cuts care to transgender kids, and it's actually a primer also on what gender affirming care is. So, um, in a very basic way, there's um, there's multiple tiers of treatment, just like there is for for anything you're trying to treat anything, right? Um, and there's a lot of misinformation out there about what's actually happening and what is recommended for someone who's under the age of eighteen that is trans. The the actual um, uh, thing that is being treated is called gender dysphoria. Um, it's a feeling of discomfort or even like physical distress um, in someone who, who identifies as a gender different from that assigned at birth. Not all trans people experience that. So some trans people will go their whole lives never taking a hormone, never thinking about surgical interventions, nothing. But gender dysphoria is the actual symptom that you're treating, um, if someone is actually considering treatment. For, For kids that are prepubescent, the only real suggestion by every medical, major medical group, all of them, including the ones that deal solely with trans people, is it's all about mental health care, and at most, it's social uh, social transition, which might be something like a kid trying out a new name, um, maybe dressing a little differently, maybe using a different pronoun, but no real interventions with uh, with any medical treatment that you might think of, like a taking a pill or getting a shot or something like that. It's after the kid has begun to experience puberty that oftentimes those discussions begin because, you know, as we all know, puberty is when your body starts changing. Um, and that's oftentimes when the feelings of gender dysphoria in a youth are the most noticeable, right? They come to the surface in in a literal way. So it's only really after mental health, um, guidance and discussions with mental health providers that a parent and a child and a doctor would consider doing something like puberty blockers. Um, so let me just take a step back. Out, You're probably hearing about puberty blockers, hor- hormone therapy, and then surgical interventions. They're all very different things and they all are appropriate for different age levels and sometimes not appropriate for different age levels. So for kids experiencing puberty, younger kids, they may try puberty blockers with the advice of a doctor and a, and their parents and with their consent, which is uh, it's basically halting the um, the progression of puberty. So it's it puts a, a brick wall there, and the idea there is that it allows the minor to continue therapy continue those discussions continue working through those feelings of gender dysphoria without having to deal with the continuing changing in their body that they experience doing during puberty if if afterwards uh, a child a, a minor in the with the agreement again of the doctor and the parent believe that there needs to be another intervention there can be hormone therapy added to uh, you know as as another step or as a a parallel step. And that is actually taking something like testosterone or a a female hormone or a male hormone to see changes in the body. This is really only suggested for people that have are, again, already experiencing puberty, have been undergoing therapy for an extensive period of time and have tried other things before this happens. It is absolutely not recommended by any major medical group that uh, someone under the age of 18 or under the age of consent, rather, get surgery um, to treat gender dysphoria. In Texas, the age of consent is 18. And so it is exceedingly, exceedingly rare that someone under the age of 18 would be getting any kind of surgical intervention to treat being uh, gender dysphoria, a trans person. It's just... Right It's so rare, it's almost not happening.
0: yeah, and to be clear if it, if you know if if it has happened, it seems like there's at least a shot there was either some kind of a medical, you know, contingency related to that or it was done, you know, separate from from medical advice, right? which i I would right. think would and make you know, is one of the things that makes it so rare
1: right. And you know, like some of these things, like puberty blockers are used already in in kids who are not transgender. Who are experiencing early puberty? You know, you might have a really little kid who's all of a sudden undergoing puberty. They're eight or nine, you know, and so this is already being prescribed to kids for other medical issues separate from you know treating gender dysphoria.
0: And and in those circumstances, my understanding is that when you have a non-surgical, when you have a you know just broadly speaking, a, a hormonal or or pharmaceutical intervention. That's utterly reversible, right? In other words, you can st-
1: Mere, nearly all of them are yes. Um, puberty blockers are reversible. Uh, so if you see information out there that says puberty blockers are not reversible that according to all of the current studies, that is not true. Um, when we we're talking about hormone therapy, there are certain uh, you know effects of certain hormone therapies that will permanently change. Uh, uh, you know, the characteristics of someone, for example, testosterone, sometimes people's voices get lower when they take it for an extended period of time. That sometimes is not reversible. Okay, that's- um, and then for trans girls, um, who might be taking female hormones, it depends on the age. It depends on, you know, the fact that they've passed puberty and how long they've been taking it. But there are studies now looking into fertility, short-term and long-term fertility consequences for extended use of, uh, feminine hormones in minors. Um, so these are all uh, issues that would be discussed with the doctor, mental health care provider, the parent, and the child, um, because again, they're serious medical decisions that all of those individuals should be involved in in making the decision behind.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that research, and I, you know, putting you on the spot a little bit since you're not a doctor. But that was a really yeah. great, careful explanation, and I, I really appreciate Thanks. it. Um, you know, I, I want to sort of step back into step back into, but then also back a little bit to mangle the metaphor. Um, you know, you've reported on the high visibility politics in this area for a while. You know, even before you were formally on this beat, it kind of intersected your other beat in a lot of ways in terms of being a state political reporter. You know, I'm I'm wondering how you see, you know, the longer arc of this issue as we go back to, you know, probably the you know the first major emergence of this issue uh, of related issues uh, in 2017 with the the so-called bathroom bill. Which, of course, right. you know, did not pass, was blocked in the House in 2017. I mean, pretty high visibility politics. I mean, I, how do you see that developing? And you know, I'm, you know, it, it, in simplest terms, I mean, did you expect it to come back after 2017? I mean, you know, I know you were covering <laughs> that issue. Did you kind of think, okay, we've, you know, we've, we, you know, this issue has been met and and controversial, but be, you know, sort of didn't pass. Were you surprised when it came back or not?
1: Um, I wasn't, um, to take it even a step further back from, from the bathroom bills. Um, you know, in 2015 was when the U S Supreme court declared gay marriage legal, um, for everybody statewide and or nationwide. And Texas was one of those States that had not legalized it. And it was after that case that, um, you know, at least the political watchers in the room said that conservative legal scholars said, okay, well, that, that fight is out the window and they turn their sights to transgender rights. Um, the first iteration was the bathroom bill issue, like you said, 2017. That didn't pass because of, mostly because of opposition from big business. Um, but the very next year, we saw more LGBT issues. We saw the emergence of the transgender athletes in public schools issue, um, which, you know, as we now know, passed last session, um, took a little bit longer, but it did pass. And now we're seeing this focus on, um, healthcare access for trans minors. You know, I think there, there's always going to be a what's next, um, for, for individuals who are not happy with the fact that certain groups, like LGBTQ people, are are getting more rights, and um, you know the transgender issue, transgender rights before twenty fifteen were not really at the forefront because there were still these other battles being fought. So I'm not surprised that it's still such a hot debate because you know trans folks don't have the same rights as LGBT, as, as lesbian, gay, and bisexual people have, um, federally or in the state. And I, you know, there's, there's not going, this isn't going to be put to bed until that happens and probably not after that either. So I, I'm really not surprised, but it all really kind of dates back to that 2015, uh, court case when, when it felt like the gay marriage debate was, was mostly settled and people were thinking, well, what's
0: next well and interestingly enough settled not only in terms of the the legal ruling of the supreme court but you know and i'd I'd leave it to supreme court scholars to parse this more carefully but you know we saw rapid movement in political in in at least relatively speaking in public opinion in the polling we do on gay marriage um that also you know was moving in the direction the court moved at the same you know who was doing mm-hmm. what and, you know, how much tandem or who was out front there, I think one can parse in different ways. You know, you, your account of that raises a couple of things I wanted to talk about. I mean, you, you talked about business groups, which you also talked about, you know, you made a, a kind of general reference to, you know, people that were watching, people that were engaged said, well, we've lost that, you know, we now have to, you know, let's move on to this issue on this front. Um, you know, where is that energy coming from to keep this more, you know, res- you know, this restrictive view of transgender rights on the table? Are there particular actors, part- in, in, uh, even more interesting to me, are there particular groups? In other words, who's, who continues to push this? I mean, one of the things that was interesting in terms of the bathroom bill is that, you know, even setting the business in- engagement aside, when we polled on that, You know, we asked not only what is your position on this, but on this issue and on these proposals in the legislature, but how important do you think it is for the legislature to engage that? And I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that, that was one of the more interesting results because it underlined that even among Republicans, there wasn't a Republican voters, there wasn't a huge amount of interest in pushing this issue forward. So, you know, I think the question has to be, where's this energy coming from, you know, within you know who are you know who are who are the folks that are pushing this and how are they doing it?
1: Um, well, to to uh, give a nod to Patrick Svitek at the Tribune, had a a recent story that really looked at the politics of this issue, and you know leaned on the fact that this did used to be more of a fringe issue in the Republican Party, um, and it's now taken it's become more of a litmus test issue just within you know a couple of years. Um, I think that there are multiple groups, national, uh, groups and state groups that are, you know, keeping this debate alive. In fact, there's a group that, um, that Paxton actually cited in his opinion about access to care for trans minors called the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, um, that he, he cited as, as a source for his opinions that has really, um, been out there as, uh, as a quote unquote health professional group um, questioning this kind of care for, for transgender children and, and adolescents. Um, and, you know, we saw it most notably in the, on the political side in the primary campaigns of some of the more uh, you know, far right conservative candidates in Texas, Don Huffines, uh, you know, a bit from Alan West um, and Patrick, uh, or sorry, i um, sorry, uh, Paxton, you know, reacting to the fact that he had multiple challengers, kind of trying to take a stand on this issue. So I think it's an amalgam of things. Um, but that's a great question. I mean, I that's something I'm going to put on my <laughs> my question <laughs> bank. Like, what what are the most groups on this, and and who's keeping it alive? Um, but as as Fitek wrote in his story, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. Uh, anytime soon. It feels very alive, very, you know, we're going to be talking about this for yeah. several months, if not right. longer.
0: Right. By going anywhere, it's not going away. It's it's almost, I mean, it's almost right. certainly headed towards the legislative agenda in 2023 sure. based on where we are now. So, you know, you talked about the role of, of business groups and, and this kind of was also, I, I read this, the uh, Patrick's excellent story that you referenced, you know, it, he portrays the business groups as more tentative, I think now than they were mm-hmm. in the past. Does that make sense to you based on your reporting and what you've seen?
1: Yeah, maybe not tentative, but uh, definitely less outspoken. Um, there was, I mean, there were coalitions coming together against the bathroom bill in 2017. You know, they were taking out ads and newspapers, IBM and Apple and Facebook. Um, and while they have come out against you know more conservative legislation like the voting rights bill and some of this other legislation in recent years um it's been it feels like it's been less loud i have to admit and um as patrick writes you know the republicans aren't really going for it anymore they're not really heeding the concerns of big business like they did five years ago so I can't get into the mind of those executives, but I almost wonder if they're saying, well, does it even matter what we say anymore if they're not going to listen to American airlines and, you know, these other huge companies, um, does it, does not does it matter for us to risk our political capital with these guys on an issue that they've already made up their minds on?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, Patrick raises this, and and this has been kind of broadly, you know, widely discussed after uh, 2021 in which You know, there's a situation which I think, you know, business groups get engaged in this. You know, it's often somewhat reluctant, I think, you know, particularly business groups that have a lot of business before the legislature. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's an institutional factor here or institutional political factor here is that, you know, Lieutenant Governor obviously looms large on an issue that's very important to the Lieutenant Governor. Lieutenant Governor has effective control of the Senate as of right now, and So if you're a business group with a wide range of your usual regulatory and business concerns before the legislature, uh, getting involved in what shareholders might or certainly, you know, I think lobby teams might see as um, non-core issues uh, uh, becomes difficult to do. And the math of that is very hard, you know, is very hard. And I think we have seen it shift.
1: Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. And, and I think next session, 2023, that's going to be the session where we see, okay, do they just sit it out? um, Or do they go even harder than they did against the bathroom bills and, and take a stand? And we'll, we'll have to see what they do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things in play here. I, th- I think... Some of those business groups in, in 2017 were quietly encouraged. I mean, actually, they were directly encouraged by Speaker Joe Strauss at the time, who, as I for recall, sure. gave a pretty, you know, high profile, a couple of very high profile speeches saying, you know, if you think that measures like this are bad for business in Texas, essentially, I need your help. We can't do it without yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, and, I, yeah. and I don't think there's a presence in the Republican Party doing that right now. Um, you know, uh, so I, it sounds to me, I mean, I wanted to ask you how strong you thought the cross currents are in the geo in, in the Republican party. We, before we came on, we were talking about some new national polling that just came out that I should say that was, uh, released to the 19th. Um, I haven't had a chance to look at it and I don't think you've been had a chance to look at the nuts and bolts very quickly, but I think, you know, what we, what we've seen in our polling across time, uh, doing it the UT stuff that we've done. And we haven't, we haven't polled on these issues really since last fall. And as I think you fairly point out, things are moving very quickly. Early on, I felt like there were a lot of cross currents in public opinion um, among, you know, including, if not especially among Republicans. Um, Mm -hmm. As recently as October, about a third of Texans didn't really want to make any kind of approval judgment about banning trans kids or limiting trans kids access to high school school high school sports and public schools clearly republican public opinion was leaning in the more prohibitive direction democrats were leaning in a more you know in, in, a, in a in a direction that opposed that kind of legislation but you could almost sense the you didn't have to sense it. You could see there were large numbers of people that didn't have an opinion or weren't ready to express one, hadn't made up their mind. But it does feel like the partisan positions are hardening now, and we are going to see that, I think, in the next session. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think um, once something becomes the subject of what feels like daily headlines, people are going are gonna to develop more of a stance on it. And it's been in the daily headlines for the better part of three weeks now in Texas. So I I do feel like we're seeing a lot of people make up their minds early on, on this issue. There's a ton of misinformation out there about, you know, like we talked about what gender affirming care actually is, who's getting it. Um, And, you know, I think what is really fascinating to me, which I would love to see some polling done on. So hint, hint. (laughs) I I have a pen Um, out. (laughs) <laughs> is, um, you know, Texas is a freedom-loving state. I mean, that's our, that's our thing, right? And so what was interesting in the 19th um, poll, this, nas- this national poll that got released in the 19th, is it seems like the way that the, p- the question was asked was, should, um, should the government be involved in decisions about gender-affirming care or should that decision be left to families and their doctors? And I think um, that is the big, uh, that that's a big contention that I would see is, you know, parents, the, the parental rights angle of this versus the, you know, state's interest in defining what child abuse is. Um, you know, we've seen in studies about uh, like what you were talking about previously about the acceptance of gay rights of gay marriage that people's ch- views radically changed when they had someone who is gay in their life that you know a kid came out to them a, a friend a co-worker and for many people you know the trans community is so small they may not have ever met someone or or not been aware that they met someone who's trans so it's not real for a lot of people but I'd be curious to see what people think of the the concept of the, of, you know, a caseworker coming into your house and saying, you don't get to make that decision for your child. We're having those discussions about vaccines and all this other stuff, but for the, for trans healthcare, you know, the government is is really getting involved and putting their hands on the issue.
0: Well, I think we've seen this, you know, uh, you know, that frame is a very interesting one right now in a lot of different contexts, as you say, I mean, in healthcare, kind of across the board. And it, I, I, you know, I think it speaks to a either a shift or a shift in the attitudes about the role of government and these that the kind of frames that you're talking about, um, where the locus of decision making could be and, you know, should be and where, but also how that kind of abstract principle, how well people's embrace of those abstract principles holds up in different contexts with other strong attitudes. I mean, we see that in other areas, like, you know, talking about state and local authority, et cetera. Hmm. Um, you know, people haven't, you, know, you know, as you, the way you kind of set that up is, you know, the freedom loving Texans, you know, those principles are often a lot more um, malleable If you, Mm. if you put them in different kind of context. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting way of framing the question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are a lot of contradictions. There are a lot of contradictions, you know, in, 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 in any (laughs) really in any cultural or political discussion, but, um,
0: yeah, I mean, if Josh, we if Josh was on the podcast, he'd be, he'd be talking right now about just, you know, yes, people, You know, we spend a lot of times trying to smooth over the contradictions in people's, you know, in in our own cognitive space. And we see that and we confront that a lot when we look at polling.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, and that's why I brought up the issue of having an LGBT person that directly interacts with someone, because that is the only thing that is that is shown to to change people's views, at least in, you know, in previous discussions about gay rights and, and same sex marriage.
0: Yeah, no, I think I, I think that's a really astute observation, and it's it, it's something I, I think we've wondered about in this context, where just that the fact of that exposure and the size of the population that we're talking about has a huge impact, and it's kind of a you know it's something of a structural factor that the the you know that activists have to accommodate, and I think frankly that. You know, I would be surprised if the activists pushing this legislation have not baked this into their strategy already.
1: Mm.
0: You know, that that they can count on people having limited experience and therefore not having a personal, more human impression of the, the you know, that, that shapes the position they take. Um, sure. And that they're counting on that. Yeah. You know, yeah. because the lack of personal information creates, I think, this... This space for misin- or personal experience creates all this space for misinformation and you know, disinformation, to be more direct about it, to seep in and shape their opinions, particularly if it's reinforced because it's coming from partisans.
1: Right. And, you know, the largest, I just want to say the largest populations of minors who identify as trans live in three states, California, Texas, or four, California, Texas, New York, and Florida, right? Big states, so not surprising. Yeah, which you would expect, um, right. Right, but we're still talking about less than one, fewer than 1% of the population between the ages of 13 and 17. So it's an incredibly small number of people.
0: Yeah, and I think just, you know, in harsh political terms, that's a, you know, that's a problem. I mean, that's a political problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, that's yeah. not a, and that's not obviously not a judgment, but it is just the fundamentals of the situation that really you know, is, makes, makes the arguments harder to make if people don't have access to experience to help, you know, tap into, you know, what one might think of as the better, you know, the better angels of their nature. Hmm. Um, Lauren, thanks for being here and helping with this. This has been, I think, incredibly, it's helpful to me. I think it's informative to people hearing it. Uh, I hope we can do this again in person. Uh, yes. as as things get more normal but certainly i'd like to have you back you know sooner than five years or whatever we decided <laughs> that was because um, i think you're right this issue is not is going to move rapidly and it's going to it's it will remain i think in the, in a basket of issues that are salient at least to, certainly to political actors um in the state and will it'll be back in the session so we hope to have you back
1: I'd love to be back talking about
0: it. All right. Well, thanks. To, thanks to Lauren for her work and for being here. Thanks to our excellent studio uh, production team and the audio studio in the Liberal Arts Development Studio here at UT Austin. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find uh, some of the data we've referenced today and some supple- and lots, lots more at the Texas Politics Project website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And we'll be back soon again with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.